I want to just ask a question. I want you to think about this for just a second. Uh, how have you arrived at the things that you believe? Right? So you start to think about how do you know anything? How do you, how do you grow? How do you start to have beliefs in your life? And, and I want you just to think about some of the ways in which you do that. And you could say, you know, well, people have taught me and, and reading and thinking and all sorts of different things. And, and there's a whole lot of ways, to be honest. And all those are true to some extent. But, you know, one of the things that I think about often in our culture and at different times, we often hold beliefs uh, kind of almost through osmosis, like that, that we've just kind of seeped into us. And part of it is because of our culture, things that we hear all the time and are said and we're inundated with and we, we're kind of just getting them, uh, even when you're not really thinking about it, consciously thinking about it. You get it through advertisements, you get it through your phone, you get it through social media, you get it through the news, you get it through all sorts of different ways that you just get all these things that kind of become part of the way that we see the world. And so uh, years ago, uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he did an uh, 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 open forum kind of thing, and he did this, what he called the Christian defeaters. And he said it's things that we start to believe in our society or our culture that we come to and we start to hold as they're true, and they've just kind of come to us through, they've been said so much, kind of that, that uh, almost... Uh, passive process of you've heard so many of these things and we start to believe they're true and they start to become just things that are part of the common sense of the culture. And so what happens is a lot of times they're the exact opposite of what the Bible says. But even as Christians, we start to fall into that trap of believing those things because they're said so often and they're so assumed and they're so everywhere in which you look that that becomes the case. And so we talked about those kind of defeaters and how we answer those. And really that's kind of what we've been doing as I was think, reflecting on him saying that. That's what we've been doing this last couple weeks, and today would be the third of three weeks. We've done this short series on different things that we hold in our culture that are the opposite of what God says. And so what we've been doing is I've been reading to you some findings from a poll that Ligonier Ministry did. Uh, just in this, They just let out a, a couple months ago. They do it every two years, and they call it the State of Theology. And what they're doing is they're talking about what people who say they believe, that are Christians, that say they believe about these different uh, topics And so they'll have these different statements and you either agree or disagree. And so two weeks ago, we talked about the reliability of the Bible, how many who claim to be Christians don't trust the Bible as God's word. And so we talked about that two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about how many people who, who claim to be Christians believe that people are mostly good, that we're born innocent before God and we're mostly good. Everyone sins a little, but we're mostly good. And it was something like 70 plus percent believe that. And we talked about last week that the Bible says that's not true, that we're very sinful and our hearts are deceitful and the wickedness that is in us because of our sin. And so we talked about that last week. This week, I want us to really think about, and if I summarize what it's saying, is this idea that you can approach God however you see fit. That's, that's really what it's getting to. And part of that's because of our culture and the moment that we live in. But this is the statement of the poll, and then I'll give you some of the statistics there. But the statement was this. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity Judaism and Islam, 67% agree and 11% are unsure. And so that means 78% think that's possible or they agree with that, that God accepts the worship of all religions, that it doesn't matter. And really what happens, I think if you ask behind that, a whole lot of people would say, well, as long as they're sincere in their faith, as long as they're earnestly seeking, God will accept the worship of all religions. And so I was thinking about just that, uh, is why that's the case. And, I, and I'm sure to a large degree that's tied to 
us living in a very relativistic culture, right? Uh, relativism is kind of the water we're swimming in. You know what I mean when I say that, right? Like a fish doesn't know it's swimming in the water, right? You're so in it. Uh, I remember hearing the joke a long time ago. Two, two young fish are swimming through the water and they pass an older fish going the other way. And the older fish says, how's the water today, boys? And they swim on a little further and they go, water, what is he talking about? What is water, right? That's kind of the culture that we live in with relativism, right? It is so inundated. It's so assumed in our culture that oftentimes we don't even recognize it when we hear it. But relativism, the idea is a doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture and there are no absolutes, right? So what you believe is true and what you feel about things, that that's conditioned by the time where you live and the place that you live and where you are. And so there's no way to say that one's more true than the other. It's all relative. And so we live in a culture that assumes that in so many ways. And so what ends up happening out of that is we kind of come to this, well, no one really knows. And so if you make a truth claim that this is true, that this is absolute and there is absolute truth, what our culture culture often says today is that's arrogant and it's exclusive and it's generally awful and it's to be avoided. You should never say that. You should never say that there is a truth claim that stands over other truth claims. But here's the problem. As believers, as those that are seeking to be obedient to Jesus in every area of our life, we say that every week, that's our definition of discipleship. We want to grow in obedience into the power of the Holy Spirit in every area of our life. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes incredibly exclusive claims about who he is. He says, I alone am God and you come through me. And what I do, or or what Chris just read from us from uh, Acts chapter four, right? Peter stands up and says, there is salvation and no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the Bible's full of this. And it's at the very heart of our faith and what we believe that there is a exclusivity in Jesus. But then I read those polls and here's. 78% either don't believe that or are unsure. And so how is that the case? How are we so far off from a biblical Christianity and what God calls us to and what Jesus says? And so I want us to think about that together. And so the first couple ways I want us to think about it. First, I want us just to think about uh, why uh, so serious of an error in such large numbers, right? Why is it that 70 something percent are either unsure or just reject that idea out of hand? So why in such large numbers is that the case? Secondly, I want us to consider why the Bible says that cannot work. Why the Bible does say it's Jesus only, and it gives us very clear reasoning as to why that's the case. And we're going to see that in Galatians chapter 3. And then lastly, I want us just to consider how Jesus alone, the exclusivity of Jesus, is such good news for everyone. It really is good news. And so let's start with just the beginning of why so serious an error in such large numbers. And I think there's two really big things in our culture, two great lies that we've embraced largely. Part of it's just kind of the the cultural moment and the things that we we, uh, grab hold of. Part of that is certainly related to the relativism that is so um, overwhelming in our culture. That idea that it's just kind of been accepted, that's almost become, as as Keller would say, a a Christian defeater because people just assume that to be true. And what gets tied to that is is a bad idea of what tolerance is. 
right? We talk about tolerance a lot in our culture. Uh, relativism and tolerance kind of go, this bad definition of tolerance go hand in hand. Uh, I'll explain that. Tolerance actually means historically that we can disagree on something. I can say, no, no, Jesus is the only way. And a Muslim can say, no, 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 it's Muhammad in the way he's revealed to us and he's, what he has told us is the only way. And we go, well, we're going to agree to disagree and we're going to continue to have a conversation. That's what tolerance looks like. We both are disagreeing, but we're going to do so in a loving and gracious way and continue to have that conversation. But what tolerance has come to, meant, come to mean in our society today is, no, 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 you don't ever disagree. Your way is true for you and my way is true for me and they're both true, which actually doesn't make any sense because they both can't be true, but that's what we've done and we say that and we start to operate that way. And so what tolerance means now is this idea that no one can have a dissenting opinion. You just have to say they're all equally valid. And so you could, you could summarize it like this. It's arrogant to say your religion is superior and to try to convert everyone else to it Surely all religions are equally valid and good uh, and a means for their particular followers. That's kind of the way we think in our culture today. They're all good and they're all right in their own way. And you have, and it's this kind of wishy-washy like we're all right. Everybody's right and it doesn't matter as long as you're just uh, sincere in what you believe. But there's a problem with that kind of thinking. It sounds really gracious. It actually sounds pretty humble and inclusive, you're right for you, and I'm right for me, and that's okay, and we'll all just get along in that way. But there's a problem there. There's actually a fatal self-defeating error in the middle of that. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but I really want you to think about it for some. Some of you have seen it before. But there is a fatal error in that kind of thinking. Tim Keller, I'm going to quote him here because he says it really well. He says, ironically, the insistence that doctrines do not matter is really a doctrine itself. It holds a specific view of God, which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So the proponents of this view do the very thing they forbid in others. Do you hear what he's saying? If we say, no, no, God accepts the worship of all religions equally, they're equally valid. You are making a very exclusive claim of what God is like. That God revealed himself this way over here and then he revealed himself contradictorily over here and he did it over here in another way and all of those hold together. What you're saying is you know what God's like. You have the big picture. That you can see all of it. And what you're really saying if you drill down and stop and think about it is you're saying all major world religions are wrong. Right? Because a Muslim would not agree with that statement. A Jew would not agree with that statement. A Christian would not agree with that statement. And you're saying, no, no, you're all wrong and I'm right. And I'll tell you, I've had this conversation at different times with people. They go, no, 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 I just think they're all equally beautiful and wonderful and they're all good and they're all true. And I go, yeah, but you're actually saying I'm wrong. And they go, no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm saying they're all right. And it's like, well, you can't have it both ways. And I've watched people go through that like, oh, no, I am being exclusive. And it's like kind of, that's the first step. Yeah, we all have to admit we all have exclusive beliefs in different ways. And so coming to that understanding that it's what we think is inclusive and affirming and it's all great and it's all whatever is not at, at all. It's actually doing the exact same thing that you're hoping that others wouldn't do. And so we've embraced that without thinking about it. And it's a self-defeating error actually in the middle of that thinking in our culture 
But it's important for us to at least shine a light on it to see it. Because it sounds really good on the surface, but when you think deeper about it, it falls apart real quickly. But then the second error, I think, grows out of the sinfulness of our heart. I know it does. It definitely grows out of the sinfulness of our heart. But it grows out of the sinfulness in our heart in this way. is that we believe that salvation comes from our doing. Right? If you start to look at the framework of pretty much every world religion, that's what you get. You do these things so that God's good with you. Right? I often think of it as this way. A plus B plus C equals if that adds up to enough, then God will accept me. And that's the sinfulness of our heart that we talked about last week. The deceitfulness of our heart. The deceitfulness of our heart makes us believe that we're the center of the world. And it's what I do. And if I do enough, then God will accept me. And so all world religions, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and opening your eyes to see it, falls into this thing of like, I have to do these things, do to be. And it's always been that case. And it's always been a struggle. In fact, I'll show you, it's always been such a struggle. Paul was dealing with it in Galatians, right? This letter that we call Galatians is a a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. And if you know anything about what happened there, Paul went and he planted this church and he got it going as he would do. He'd preach the gospel and he'd set it up and then he'd go on his way and then he'd get reports about these different churches and he'd write them letters. And so what he heard had happened is he goes and he plants this church in Galatia and he goes on his way and he gets a later a letter later on that people came behind him and said, no, 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 you're not saved by faith in Jesus alone, but you're saved by faith plus doing a bunch of other things that you actually need to be Jewish and you need to keep these laws and you need to be circumcised and you need to have Jesus plus a bunch of other things. And they started to believe that. And do you know why they start to believe that? It's the default of our sinful heart. Well, yeah, it's got to be partly me. It's got to be my doing. Right? That's what sin does. It places us in God's place and puts us at the center of everything rather than God being the center. And so they started to believe that in Galatia. And they're struggling with that. And they're wrestling with that idea. And so if you look here at the beginning of Galatians chapter 3, look at what Paul says. 3 verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? You are now being perfected by the flesh. Do you hear what he's saying? Right. They believed and the spirit came in their life. And they're putting their faith in Jesus. And it was by faith alone in the preaching of the gospel. And yes, we put our faith in Jesus. And he says, you received the spirit. You hadn't done anything except believed what I told you about who Jesus is. And now someone's come behind you and said, you've also got to do all these other things. He goes, what do you think? He said, right, Paul's very logical. Think with me. How did you get the spirit? Was it because you did a whole bunch of things or was it because you believed when you heard the truth? And they knew the answer. So he's appealing to what had happened in their lives, but he's saying it doesn't work that way. But they had started to fall back into this idea that they're saved by their works. And that's the deceitfulness of our heart that always wants to make it about our works. And so I was thinking about just that poll question here that says, God accepts the worship of all religions, and they specifically say Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. The three largest, three largest monotheistic uh, religions in the world. And so I went and looked it up. I went and looked up, because I didn't want it to be, for my my words, 
But I, I looked up on a, a kind of popular website for a seminary, a, a Jewish seminary, basically was what it was. And I was reading what the rabbi says on how salvation comes. How are we saved? And he talks about the transformative power of Shabbat, right? Shabbat being uh, the, the Sabbath and doing the things that God tells you to do. And he says, according to the Talmud, that if the Jewish people in its entirety were to observe it properly, but twice in a row, they would immediately merit redemption. Right? If they would do this and they would do it in the right way, they would immediately merit redemption. And so then I went to, to uh, what's it called? Salam Islam. Same thing. Imam, uh, a Muslim teacher, answering questions about what does it mean to be saved? And what does salvation look like? And he says, even following the prophets in Islam never means that human generation can be saved by having belief in their prophethood. So here what he's saying. You're not saved by believing in Muhammad. That's not it. He says, but it is by following their guidance and their rules of the religion and by doing righteous deeds that one can reach salvation. Do you hear what he's saying? You are saved by doing these things and doing them well enough and then you will achieve salvation. It's the same thing that the, the rabbis say. If we could do this and do it well enough, we would immediately merit redemption. And they're saying that's the, what they're doing and what they're saying is the way all human thinking is. It's what we do. It's what Paul was dealing with with the church in Galatia. They were starting to slip into that thinking, oh, well, we must do some things so that we can be saved, and it's based on what we do. And that's the sinfulness of our heart. And you can go all the way down the line looking at world religions. It's do to be. Do these things so that I can be saved. And it's the default of our heart. And so here's where I'm driving with all this. So please see this. You get to the end of what are the errors that are leading us to say that God accepts the worship of all religions. It's because they're looking at it from the perspective that the way in which you are good with God is by doing good deeds. So who cares which one you're really following? We're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to be good. Whether Islam or Judaism or Christian, we're all trying to do, the, do our best. And so sure, God accepts it. If you're a good person, right? Remember last week, the air 75% believed that we're mostly good and we just sin a little. And if you're mostly good and you just sin a little, then it stands to reason that you can earn your salvation by doing some good deeds. And so that's the framework with which they're working. And that's why they can say that all of those can come before God in that way. Now, why does that not work? Why is that the exact opposite of what Scripture says? Look at what it says here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so he's telling us, he's giving us the framework in which we see that it cannot work by our doing. 
Right? Look at what he says there in verse 10. Cursed is the one. Right? You see it there where he says it. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You have to do all of it. Right? If you're going to merit your salvation by what you do, if you're going to approach God in his perfect holiness and righteousness in every way by your doing, you have to do all of it. You have to be perfect. And so if you're operating under the assumption that I can merit my salvation between, before a holy, righteous, perfect God by what I'm doing, you're seeking to accomplish something you can never, ever do. Do you see how that's a curse? See how awful that is? If God gave us the law and said, here, do all these things and do them perfectly so that you can be saved and none of us can do it, how cruel would that be? And that's exactly what Paul's telling us. It doesn't work. Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Who has showed you this? Who has told you that you can somehow merit your salvation? That's not how this works. And he's reminding them that that's not the case. And so what happens is we end up misusing the law. We misuse what God had given it to us for, thinking that we can somehow earn it. Right? Or or what the, the imam says. But it's by following their guidance and the rules of the religion by righteous deeds that we can reach salvation. That's what he's teaching. That's what they're saying. And that's not the case. That was never the case. That's not even the case in the Old Testament. Sometimes we get confused on that. But but if you go back, go back to verse 5 for just a second, real briefly. Look at what he says. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or hearing with faith? Paul's uh, here, he's really appealing to what they know, what they have seen and they've experienced. Paul came into this place and he gloriously preached the gospel and he says it's Christ alone and it's what Jesus has done. And people said, yes, and the spirit fell and they were saved and they saw God moving. And he's going, how did that work? Did you do a bunch of things? And they knew that that was not the case. But then look at what he says in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know what he's talking about? Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham's a really old man. God says you're going to have lots of kids, like lots of descendants. You're going to have a child. It's going to happen. And Abraham's an old man with no kids. And he takes him outside and he says, look up at the stars. You're going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And Abraham goes, okay, I believe you. And Genesis 15, 6 says, And Abraham believed God and he counted to him his righteousness. So how was Abraham saved in the Old Testament? In believing that God's going to do what God says he's going to do. By faith. And so Paul's telling you, even the Jews in the Old Testament were saved by faith. It's the same thing. And it's the same thing now. And if you think you can do it by your keeping the law, you've missed the whole point. Which leads to the question, which is a good question if you have, well, what's the point of the law? Oftentimes people get so confused. Well, why did God give them the law? Wasn't that how they were saved in the Old Testament? And they had to do, no, God gave them the law to constrain evil because of the deceitfulness of our hearts and our sin. And he goes, this is the way my world works. And so I'm going to give you these things to help everything not just go off the rails. But then he gives them the law to show them that they cannot do it. You know what God does right after he gives them the law? Moses comes down, he gives them the Ten Commandments and all that. You know what happens next? 
He gives them the plans for the tabernacle. The way that a righteous, holy God can dwell among a sinful people in which they can make sacrifices and they can confess their sins and they can come and say, we can't do this. It was never, you're going to do these things so that you can merit your salvation. You're going to see these things so that you see that you've not done it. Cursed is the one who sees the law as the means of salvation in their life. It can never, ever happen. But why are there so many religions that pop up with that? Because it appeals to the sinfulness of our heart. You can do it and you just follow these things and do them well enough and God will accept you. That's a lie. But it appeals to us because of the deceitfulness of our hearts. That's why 70% go, yeah, God accepts all of it. It's because we think it's about us and what we do rather than what God has done for us in Jesus. And so if you look closely here, he actually tells you how it works. Why it has to be Jesus. Why it's only Jesus. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. Can't be by your doing. It has to be through faith. The only way that you will ever be righteous is by transferring your trust from yourself to Jesus. Look at what he says next. But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. What's he talking about? How does Christ redeem us from the curse? We can't do it. We know we've not done it. We can't measure up. If we think we can be saved by works of the law, we're cursed. So how does he redeem us from that curse? Jesus comes and lives the life that we haven't lived. Where we are covenant breakers, right? In the Old Testament, it talks about covenants. With it are blessings and curses. If you break the covenant, if you don't do the thing God tells you, there's consequences that come with it. If you keep them, there's blessings. There's good that comes if you just follow what God says. And we've not done that. We're covenant breakers that deserve all the curses or consequences that come with it. And then Jesus comes and he is the perfect covenant keeper. He keeps all of it perfectly in every way. He loves God and he loves man and he never sins. He is without sin and he comes to the end of his life and he deserves all the blessings that come with it. He does it perfectly in every way. The only sinless person who's ever lived comes to the end of their life. And what do they get? He says, I will lay down my life for you. I will take the curses that you deserved on myself and I will pay for them and I will bring them to nothing. Second Corinthians five. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we can become the righteousness of God in him. And it's only by what He does for us. The perfect covenant keeper who deserves all the blessings says, no, I will become a curse for you. And they hang Him on a tree. They nail Him to a cross. You know what Paul's talking about in Deuteronomy? They would hang criminals on a tree if they'd been killed for their crimes. And so the saying was, cursed is the man that hangs on the tree. That's what Paul's talking about. And he says, Jesus becomes a curse for us. And he's hung on the tree on our behalf. 
And God pours out his holy, righteous anger on Jesus and brings it to nothing. And it's the only way that we can be saved. That's why Peter stands up and says there's salvation in no other name. You cannot approach God by keeping the five pillars of Islam. It won't do it. It will never be enough. You can't keep it by keeping the Sabbath perfectly. You can't keep it by doing the things. The only way that it can ever happen is by what Jesus has done for us. The only way that we can approach God is by a righteousness that's not our own. The righteous shall live by faith. And that faith is putting your trust in Jesus and not your own performance. And it's the only way that it can work. And so when people say, well, God accepts the worship of all religions. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is. God is perfectly holy and righteous in every way. And it's only by what Jesus does for us. God himself coming to do for us what we can never, ever do for ourselves. It's the only way. And the Bible tells us that over and over and over again. Now, why is that such good news? That's a hard thing to say today in our culture. I'm aware of that. You say that and you go, no, 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 it's only Jesus. You're so exclusive. It's regressive. How dare you think that your truth is greater than my truth? And we use the right those. That, that's a that's a alarm bell that we live in a relativistic society. Your truth and my truth, and they somehow can both be right. And so, why is it good news? If the truth is the only way that you stand before God is by Jesus's righteousness for you. It is unloving not to say so. If that's all there is, if the only way, the only hope that we have is the righteous shall live by faith, that what Jesus says is the God of the universe, is this is it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The only way to truly be loving is to speak the truth about who God is. And I know that's difficult in the time we live in. But you speak the truth and you do so with great humility because you know that your righteousness is not your own. You know that it's only through faith in what Jesus has done for you. It's not because look at me and I figured this out and I'm so smart. No, it's because I am a desperate sinner that desperately needs God. And so it should be done with great humility and kindness and graciousness. But as Peter says in Acts 4, you stand up full of the Holy Spirit and say, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus. And it's loving to do so because it's the only hope that we have. But the second thing to say to you why it's really good news, every world religion, when you stop and think about it, kind of this A plus B plus C equals if I do enough, then I'll be saved. You know what's underneath that? Foundationally under that is that we all know that we don't measure up. And people who are operating under that, I'll just do these things and I do them well enough and then things will work out or then God will accept me. That's where Jesus is so blazingly, gloriously beautiful. 
He stands in the middle and goes, all you who are heavy burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. This system that you're trying to operate under to somehow earn your salvation will never work, but I am here. And he says, come to me and I've done it. And you trust in me. That is good news to the person who is laboring to try to earn their worth before God. Because they know. If you put your faith in Jesus, you know. You know what it's like to try to justify yourself by what you do. It's exhausting. It's overwhelming. But the glorious good news is Jesus says, I don't leave you in that. I'm here to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And we get to go and share that with people. And remind them that there is rest. That God does love us. That He has come to us. That He's done for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. But then the last thing, and I'll end here. When we see that and we embrace it, you know, so often we think about religion and doing these things. What's under that for all? I want to be better. I want to be good. I want to have. Th- I want to grow, and I want to be a better person, and all those kind of things. And the reason, I mean, part of that, the reason is they're made in God's image. They know there's something more. They're wanting those things. But the sad truth is, if you seek to do it in your flesh by what you do and earn your way to God, you'll never get there, ever. But in Jesus, when you put your faith in Christ, the Spirit comes and dwells in you. And God sees you as righteous in that moment. That's good news. Even when you're a mess, and even though you don't have it all together, He sees you as righteous now. Right now. But then because He is so loving and He is so good, His Spirit continues to move in you and through you, and He begins to change you from one degree of glory to another. And that thing that you're desiring and you're wanting is ultimately that relationship with God, but also you want to see in your life those changes come. He says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to finish this good work that I've begun in you. And none of us is going to achieve it in this life. But as God continues to work in and through us, and then when he returns, we're going to stand before him gloriously, perfectly all together in what he has designed us for in Jesus. And we're going to go, yes. And every person you know, that is seeking to do all those things is looking for that. And the good news is it can come. And the good news is it is coming if you put your faith in Jesus and what He's done. And so the good news is really good news for every single person you know. That we would continue to see that Jesus alone is the answer. Would you pray with me? God, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. I pray that you would help us to see it afresh today. That we would see the glorious beauty of what you've done for us in Jesus. That it would shine so brightly. That when we look around at our culture and the world, people would turn or scoff at this idea that you alone are the way. That we would have such a bright, shining clarity of why that is the case. And that you would overwhelm us with your presence. I pray that we would be like Peter in Acts chapter 4. Even in the face of being thrown in jail. Or being persecuted. That we would speak the truth of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.